people are always already marked as killable, always already marked as dead. Black people's life has always been tethered in value to how we are situated in the economy. So when I try to relate the biological grieving to the grieving of a social death, is would you say your work is part is that grieving process in a way of trying yeah. to like shit? It could be a black person getting they getting their head, you know what I'm saying, beat in. You feel me, and not receiving justice. You know what I'm saying, and that's that that it causes a collective mourning. I want to thank you again for being here, for real. It means a lot that you even take the time doing here. I'll get you to the airport in a timely manner. I promise. Uh, I appreciate it too, man. I'm about to use your studio and go crazy on these TikTok <laughs> videos too. Ain't a lot to you. Lightning here is amazing. So you know, and too, I got a couple uh, people I've, I've been needing to line up on an intellectual ass whooping. You know what I'm saying? So they definitely gonna gonna get spanked as soon as we dump this podcast. So yeah, man, you, you about to get my intellectual juices flowing. I, I like that because as soon as we started talking, I feel like the education process for me already started before we even recorded. So I'm, I'm ex- <laughs> seriously, I'm excited to hear you know, your thoughts and everything. And obviously this is a podcast about death. And uh, I, I, my question when I asked you off mic was about how the experience you've had around death in your life and how that's shaped you or has put you on the path that you're on right now. Mm-hmm. And you brought up Afro-pessimism, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, would you tap into that? Maybe explain yeah. a little bit about what yeah. that was because you're, yeah. you're putting me yeah. on right now. Man, for the people listening that's not familiar with me, I come from a, 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 a deep college background of policy debate where we used a lot of academic and literature basis to talk about policymaking and to talk about identity, you feel me? Um, Afro-pessimism was the first literature base that I fell in love with that was able to give me a way to, what Huey P. Newton says, define the phenomenon and make it act in a desired manner. You know what I'm saying? That's what Huey P. Newton, the co-founder of the Black Panther Party, says. He said that power is the ability to define the phenomenon and make it act in a desired manner. When I was 19, I read... Some, some shit from Huey P. Newton, and that's kind of what made me think about the world differently and made me feel like I had power over how, how my phenomenon was being read and how I was positioning this phenomenon called life. You feel me? So shit, when I turned like 22, that's when I started picking up Afro-pessimism as, as a literature base in terms of debating, and that's when I started to think about the Black experience and the Black position in a much more critical way. So Afro-pessimism being a, a, a academic literature, or I guess I would say an academic spot, you know what I'm saying, about how uh, Black people in America particularly, but also have international, you know what I'm saying, analysis, but how Black Americans particularly are positioned in a constant state of social death and how uh, Western civilization, America, you know what I'm saying, is able to politically, socially, and economically progress and sustain itself through this social death. You know what I mean? And how I will understand social death breaking it down simply is just like the way in which black people are excluded from social life, right? We can acknowledge that from a legal, from a illegal from a political, from an economic and a cultural, you know what I'm saying, space that structurally black people are excluded from those things in terms of just basic human rights, right? For me, when you ask me the question, like, so what is your unique relationship to how you experienced death when you grew when you grew up, when you was growing up? To me, it's like, I'm not conscious of those things when I'm growing up. It's not to when I start to become much more critical and no pun intended, again, conscious about how my life is how I've been able to navigate it based off how I'm positioned, you feel me? So when I learned about social death, it made me think about, damn, this, this is able to speak to how black people are always already marked as killable, 
always already marked as dead. And for me, being a Southerner from Texas, I, I understood it from like shit, the lynching, the era of lynching, right? We can recognize that black life was so valuable to America, you feel me, in, in times of slavery, that the way that black death was experienced in this country, it wasn't as pervasive. Were slaves murdered? Definitely. But when we think about the way in which black people were lynched after slavery was outlawed and how black life was sustained during slavery, we can acknowledge there's a difference, right? So when we look at the, from an economic standpoint, a purely economic standpoint, you can recognize that black people's life has always been tethered in value to how we are situated in the economy. So once slavery becomes outlawed, we recognize that a lot of poor white people view black people as mere competition in the marketplace. So it incentivizes more social death, right? Where it's literally a whole bunch of lynching going on. When we have a world war, you know what I'm saying? You know, when that starts to roll around or we start to have industrialization roll around, black labor, black bodies are now needed in factories. They're now needed in plants and steels. So now we see that black death, it goes down. So when you ask the question, it's like, what is your unique relationship to death? I automatically thought about it and filtered through. I'm from Bryan, Texas. You feel me? I've been, my, 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 my life been shaped by the prison industrial complex and shaped by white supremacy in ways where it's literally, de, it's impacted how I define myself and how I define the world. So when you ask me, I'm thinking of how the, the political thought of death and the literal, like biological death and how like them two things are separate and distinct by how they play together. Whew. Damn, brother. And that implication of, you, you hit the nail on the head when you said biological death, because clearly that's, I think, the first assumption when people talk about death, but there's clearly many forms of death. So even though you're alive, you could be living a life that is not quite alive in many ways. So that, when you when you use the word death, you're insinuating a beginning somewhere, right? So what is that, What where did it start? Like, is it, you're saying it's, was it slavery? Is that what you're yeah, yeah. Like That's uh, the day Afro, one death? Yeah, yeah. Afro-pessimism contains that, the slave got onto the boat, or Africans got onto the boat as African and got off the boat as slave, as, as black. And contends that black people experience a ontological death. Ontology being a fancy word for being and becoming. You feel me? So the way that black people be and the way that black people become is structured by the middle passage, the triangle trade. When we took African people from Africa and brought them to the Caribbean and then shipped them from North America to South America to Europe, saying that black people experience a certain natal alienation. You know what I'm saying? And how you feel me and how we experience the world. Natal alienation being I have a master's degree in human relations and I can acknowledge that conflict is a, a, a integral part of the human, you know what I'm saying, uh, uh, experience, right? I can acknowledge that in Scotland, lowlanders and highlanders fought each other, you know what I'm saying? I can acknowledge, you feel me, that, you know what I'm saying, uh, uh, William the Conqueror was the last person to invade England and this, that, and the other, right? What I also can acknowledge is making unique distinctions, you know what I'm saying? What's, what's, what's different about uh, about, about chattel slavery that black people experience is that the entire world view black people through the eyes of the slave master. Natal alienation is how black people become separated from land, from culture, from language. You become a people of no land, a people of no culture, a people of no language. Now, it's now so much you go through a constant state of otherization 
that your body is a fungible thing that can be used to make to, to, to better whatever life it is. You see what I'm saying? May it be emotionally or may it be like materially. And I feel like just, you know, going back to something simple as Huey P. Newton saying, define the phenomenon and make it act in a desired manner. Afro-pessimism gave me the language to speak to the black experience in a way that I feel like I wasn't able to use. When we think about racism, we think about that shit in terms of like the political economy of racism, i.e. racism makes money, right? Afro-pessimism gave me a way to understand the libido economy, the economy of emotions and the economy of feelings and how anti-black violence is also driven through that understanding, you feel me, of libido violence. We can acknowledge that when a slave master is flogging and decapitating the slave, that's not going to no economic, you know what I'm saying, advantage. But we can acknowledge that there is something libido, the feelings, emotions, the economy of that, that's cathartic, that made where a person is incentivized to do crazy things to black people, right? To me, Afro-pessimism was a way for me to really understand political, socially, economically, how I can build. And I view it as more of a description of the world. And for me, like, like uh, ideologically, I view like Afrofuturism as almost like a, 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 a prescription to kind of move through the world. You feel me? When, when you talk about, so with all this kind of put together, when you talk about, uh, you know, a sociological, a social death, and you relate it to a biological death, there's a grieving process. This is such a different perspective because this is, gen this is generational. This is uh, collective. You know what I mean? It's not just the grief of one person. Yeah. So when I try to relate the biological grieving to the grieving of a social death, is would you say your work is part, is that grieving process in a way of trying yeah. to bring back to life? Like what, what is the transition and what is that grief process of social death? To me, the griefing process of social death I would go to the alleged statement of Harriet Tubman. I've known that it's been uh, a, a battle that she did not say this, but I think it still is a powerful tool to how we think about imagine, imagining, you feel me? She was allegedly asked, like, you know, what is, like, like, like do she wish she could have saved more people or how she wish she could have saved more people from the plantation? And she said something allegedly, you feel me, about if I could have convinced them they were slaves, I would have been able to help more people, right? So for me, I think about like raising consciousness in a way where I'm born and raised in Bryan, Texas. I didn't know Fox News was a right-wing conservative until I was 19 or 20. I thought that Fox News, the channel, the news was objective, empirical, everything, right? I'm not aware of the way in which I'm positioned. I'm living it, but I'm not conscious of it. So for me, it's thinking about how collective trauma works and how, like, shit, it could be a black person getting their getting head, you know what I'm saying, beat in, you feel me, and not receiving justice, you know what I'm saying? And that's, that, that it causes a collective mourning, you know what I'm saying? I think about, like, in terms of death and how we bridge social death to biological death. When a black person is biologically murdered and the state backs it up and enforces that murder, that, that death, Black people collectively experience, you know what I'm saying, experience that. And we understand how we are marked infinitely, like, yeah, almost like, I am Trayvon Martin. I am Sandra Bland. We acknowledge that we can be done that way because the world relates to our bodies in that particular way. That's, that, to me, is simply the way that Black folks acknowledge how we live in a constant state of social death. So to me, what it means to like, like, like go through that healing process, to me, is like being able to let people understand. Like, for, like a lot of people are grieving and they don't know 
You know what I'm saying? Like in general or specifically with, you know, social, we're talking about, we're talking about I social. Think both ways. I think, I think, I think, I think, we know that grief can manifest itself in many ways. It's just a loss, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So it's thinking about the ways that we have, like how, how, how we grieve with those losses. And then for me thinking about it on a, on a, on a like sociological, philosophical in terms of grieving, it's like when you, as a black person, when you feel as if you're being told you can't get something or you can't access something based off of how you position that grief you deal with, right? And then thinking about how today I did a little talk at San Bernardino College, you know what I'm saying? And one of the students had asked me about, hey, how do you feel when black people protest, when white people kill us, but we don't protest when, 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 when black people kill us. And I, like, I felt weird to, like saying it to him. It was like, hey, peep game, the beef is not death. If Tyrone killed Pookie, Tyrone taking his ass to jail. We do not have to protest to make sure that this person is held accountable for their death. If a police officer or a random white person kill a black person, it is likely that they're going to get off, right? So when we're protesting, we're not protesting the death. We recognize death is a, is a, it's a natural state of life. We're protesting the injustice that is the death. You see what I'm saying? And being able to recognize how, like, that grief and the healing and all that shit go with that part specifically and what I feel like my work is doing. I'm trying to raise consciousness about how you understand yourself, how the world is positioned, and make it where you can define the phenomenon and make it act in a desired manner. And I know that grief is is a phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, whenever... You're in your name conscious and bringing people to consciousness is, you know, awareness. So it's, it's breaking that awareness, right? That's, and that's why it makes sense to me. You're saying people don't know when they're grieving, especially in the sense that we're talking about, because if you're not even conscious of whatever you want to call it, the issue, the conflict, the problem, how are you going to know you're even grieving? You just think this, it's so ingrained in you, whatever, whatever it is that you don't even, if you don't realize it, if you don't realize it, then feeling this way is like the new normal. You know what I mean? So, it's, so, so you're bringing people, you're making people aware, and that's like the mind shift because you seem to have made that awareness at some point. Was there a pivotal moment that shifted something in you when you were a kid, or is this something that you've been aware of yourself? Man, I think I think I had gradual moments, gradual stages in my life that opened up my eyes a little bit more. You feel me? And it's depending on what age I was, I was able to reveal a lot more about myself or the world for me to be able to have this understanding. You feel me? To move. So it's like being being born and raised in Bryan in a community that is, you know, like high police presence. Low employment rates, you know what I'm saying? Um, you know, uh, uh, schooling shaped by, you know, property taxes, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, if you got low property taxes, you got low school funding. And really thinking about that, I feel like uh, I had ADHD. I have ADHD, right? And I was a part of the ADHD to gifted and talented pipeline. Because I was on that pipeline, you feel me, of being seen as an exceptional, magical Negro that's going to be not like the rest of them in Brian. Because I think about it like, we already, and, and I feel like in my community, stereotypes are already be, you feel me? And like when you come from the east side of Brian, the west side of Brian, or Jordan Loop, or Biddle Lane, certain communities, it's already expectations of who you can be, how you can be, and how you express yourself. Based on how you're positioned? Based on how you position. It's like literally, it's like, hey, you're a teacher? Uh, that person from over that side, well, you know how they are. And it's like, it's like I like living in a constant state of facticity where it's like I don't get to transcend who I am. I get to be stuck in who you hold me to be and who you think I am. 
statistically, if your parents this, that, and the other, you're going to be this, that, and the other. So, you know what I'm saying? I understood how people are from this side of town. You know what I'm saying? So it's like I was able to be, you know, the the the, the ghetto kid gone good. You feel me? That's how, that's how I think about it, right? So it's giving me a lot of survival guilt because I know that shit. I, was, I didn't get diagnosed with ADHD until like October. But not a, This past October? Yeah. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. You feel me? So now that I understand the symptoms of ADHD, I know I could think of a lot of black people individually that I grew up with that their ADHD was criminalized where it put them in the school to prison pipeline. My ADHD allowed me to go through the gifted talents pipeline. You see what I'm saying? A lot of survivors get a lot of that. But to me, it's like I, I was able to recognize from going to second grade, I was at Kemp, I mean, at second grade, I was at Crockett Elementary that was like more diverse. And when you was a kid, you got treated like a kid for the most part. And then I moved to the black side of town where my grandma stayed and my daddy then was raised that I went to Kemp Elementary, a black school. What was very a turning point for me that made me see the world through a very racialized lens. When I went to that white school, when kids fought, when kids cussed, when kids did things that kids do, they were treated as a kid. At that black school, in third grade, fourth grade, well, actually fourth grade, you know what I'm saying? Uh, uh, what fourth, uh, fourth grade Mrs. Burns class. I seen it from my eyes, bro. I seen, I seen, I seen, I seen black kids being escorted off campus, you know what I'm saying, in handcuffs. The same shit that a kid would do at Crockett Elementary, you know what I'm saying, and get put in in-school suspension is the same thing at the black school you'll get sent or, 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 or a citation for. The totally new reality. Totally new reality. And so, and too, it's like, shit, I was seen as a problem kid when I was around the white kids and going to the predominantly white school that was, you know what I'm saying? When I went to the black school, I was there for two weeks. They seen there was something different about me, and I was, I was, you know what I'm saying, put in a gifted and talented program and passed these tests and got all the special treatment because I thought differently about this, that, and the other. So when I got done with my homework quick, when I got done with schoolwork quickly, they sent me to somewhere else and I was doing other things. You know what I'm saying? But I'm understanding how, 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 how fungibility worked. So how fungibility work, it made it where I was already marked as a model citizen and as somebody that was able to have enough self-determination regardless of what was going on around me that was good. And it made it where my value, like my life at fourth grade, I had more value, a unique value to my school compared to the other black people. And it was, it was understood to me. And think about it, like this is why I did, this is my experience of a four-week period. Four weeks, I'm in fourth grade. I went from third grade being at Crockett Elementary around the white people and around Mexican people and around black people, but it being more mixed, but it being half white, 25% black, probably 25% Mexican, if I'm, you know what I'm saying, rough estimations. At Kemp Elementary, I can tell you it was one white person, shout out to my boy Trevor French. You know what I'm saying? That's the one white person I went to elementary school with in fourth and fifth grade. All black, you feel me? That all black school, I seen how we was rendered socially dead. And that really made it. So it's like, and then I keep on, and then I can keep on going. But that was fourth grade, you feel me? Or the first time I got called an N-word, you feel me? It's like, you know, I feel like those times was shit that really, you know what I'm saying, really, really sparked it. But that Huey P. Newton book, though, was a thing that made me feel like I do something about it. That was a thing that made me feel liberated and empowered. At first, it was a saying it down south, man, it is what it is. It is what it is. So is it breaking that... The programming, because the way you're saying is like when you were in school, people were just talking this, that, so-and-so is like that from over there and, and all that. It seems like, and and you weren't able to transcend based on these programs, right? Is that, is that a way, a yeah. weird way of saying it? Is yeah, that that's what I would say. That's what I would say. So, I say I was able to unlearn and relearn. I was able to break my indoctrination. I was able to think outside of the confines of how I was taught to think about the world. 
Hmm. And what do you and what do you do? I know you're doing it, but on a podcast to explain it further, what are you doing to break that programming of the masses? Because you're doing it on a, on a very big scale. You're reaching a lot of people, and you can't obviously. It's hard to do individual work with mm-hmm. your time to get to everyone. So, what are some practices you're doing? to break that programming because the programming in the sense that we're talking specifically, I think can be applied in so many different avenues of life. And I feel like maybe your modalities or your thoughts and perspectives on that might help someone that's programmed in whatever the fuck they're programmed in. Yeah. I look at, I look at, to me, it's like, I want to be an ally and I try to make other people be allies and accomplices. So it's like, shit, as a, as a, as a cisgender black man, I understand myself as being an anti-sexist sexist. That means that I understand that sexism is bad. I've read feminist literature. I can tell you about first wave feminism and second wave feminism and third wave feminism and shit like that. But I understand that I'm still implicated in my position of masculinity and being a man. So I don't think that I'm immune to being sexist. See what I'm saying? So it's like today is today, but tomorrow I hope to be more conscious of the ways I'm sexist today. And I don't think it, I don't think my work is ever done in terms of self-discovery and self-realization and self-consciousness. So for me, it's like if I'm always trying to grow and be a better person than I was yesterday and be able to understand more how I'm implicated in somebody else's progression or not, you know what I'm saying, getting in the way of that progression, I think that I'm doing, I think I'm doing the work. And I think that I'm living by what I'm saying. And I think I'm, you know what I'm saying, doing it. So for me, it's like I, I'm not gonna say nothing on social media that I haven't already thought about a lot of times. And because I come from a debate background, I'm not going to say nothing I can't defend. And what I think for me and how I do my work is debate has been real, real, real instrumental in my whole shit. You feel me? Whether it was me before I got into social media and learning how to, you know what I'm saying, converse, learning all this stuff, all these philosophies and theories, or me being being able to build my platform through challenging and through debating other people or making people feel like they can challenge and debate me. So I feel like... For that, for me, it's making it where everybody think they can debate until it's time to debate. So that's how I feel like I've been able to plant different seeds and grow my platform because hey, today I might be debating you about racism. Tomorrow I might debate you about heteronormativity. The next day I might debate you about ableism. The next day I might debate you about Islamophobia. You see what I'm saying? But because I did debate in a way, it made it where I was able to find my passion and find what make me tick, find what I can hyperfixiate on as an ADHD person. You feel me? Somebody on that neuro spicy, you feel me, spectrum. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know what I like. And I know if I could find what I like, I know I'd be good at it. That's how most of my life been. So it's like, shit, this is what I like. I'm good at it. I'm good at speaking to it. it Make me feel alive. That debate, man. The debate, I think, is so important, and because I, I think there's a this is maybe generalized. I don't know, but the idea of be, of debating comes off as a like contentious. Other debating, no. I think, I think the debating is so important, especially to what we've been discussing. Because if there's a mindset of being programmed that you can't transcend to being, you know, something even better than you'd ever dream of, then debating is an opportunity to see another side. And that's it. And it's like, it goes back to, again, to your name consciously is raising awareness. The only way to be aware is to be presented another idea, another thought. And what better to do that during debate? And if people could see you in live action debating two ideas, not doesn't have to come off as contentious. It's exploring ideas and you can learn from each other. And that, to me, that seems like such an ultimate part of raising awareness is to hear other sides of the coin. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think that it, it builds community. And when you, when you think about debate outside of the taboo, you recognize that conflict breeds innovation. See what I'm saying? 
And conflict is really just two different positions, two or more different perspectives of opinions or forces. Debate is literally that. If you see debate as just natural conflict and how we're able to get to end up, you know what I'm saying, this, that, and the other, yeah. I feel like you don't see it as pretentious, especially when you think about it. Think of American history. When we learned about the Virginia plan versus the New Jersey plan and the Federalist Papers and the Compromise of 19, we, we, we're being taught that through the art of debate. Alexander Hamilton, we being taught history through the lens of debate. Is it something about how we are conditioned to not want to challenge things on an interpersonal level where we start to literally create narratives around the activity of debate as being pretentious, as being this, as being that, and it's all negative? Because I come from that, because I debated for like 10 years, I seen debate as, I told you, me and, me and Max, I didn't, me and Max did not like each other when we first met each other. You feel what I'm saying? Like, we, we have the same editor. Yeah, we have the same editor. <laughs> and we met, you know what I'm saying, through the editor. And it's like, I can recognize that debate made it where I understood more things about myself and made it where I understood things more about this just human connection. And I feel like when you see it as just that, it's just that. Because think about it. We'll debate about football or basketball. We'll debate about who's the, who's the GOAT, MJ, you know what I'm saying? We'll debate about what you or like. Who, or who, who, yeah. who are you going to throw next to MJ? LeBron. Okay, okay. Yeah. All right, nice, nice. nice. Yeah, LeBron. I, I, you know, hey, just make it sure. Just make it sure. But to me, to me though, I think that debate though is 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 a beautiful activity. You feel me? That brings us together and that's able to bring better methods, better strategies, better policy, better better everything. You said something. Uh, you stuck it amongst those words. Was uh, you said internal debate or having those that 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 internal debate or something of the sort? I don't know how exactly you just worded it, or maybe I misheard you. Yeah. But I think that is. It sounds like you're almost doing it, your internal debates externally because you're learning so much from it and a side of you want to explore your own ideations as opposed to just coming off like I want to win. You know what I mean? You're like, yeah. you're teaching yourself at the same time. But those internal debates, that's the, uh, isn't that kind of a dangerous zone? Like it's important because I do it all the fucking time. Yeah. But at what point do you win the debate? How do you win the debate of that internal debate? Nah, see, that's why. That's but you, but you are you already said Maybe what not you're not supposed to do. That's what. That's, that's yeah, why. Sorry, if you, right. That came it's, out it's, if, right. I think that for me, my internal voice, it's about gaining clarity and about thinking about a particular issue or idea for multiple vantage points. Once I feel like I've accounted for the entire bull and not just the horns or not just the head or not just the ass, now I feel like I can move towards the bull in a more equitable, conscious way. So for me, my internal voice is just me trying to, I trust myself more than I trust more than most, most people. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So for me, my internal voice is just really trying to navigate and think about the various risks creating that cost-benefit analysis, thinking about the, the loss versus, you know what I'm saying, and, and then really moving, and then creating an informed decision and then going there. You see what I'm saying? But also recognizing that I'm not going to have a good internal dialogue if I'm only sticking in my head. I got to have conversations like this in order for me to keep the, the voices, I'm going to say the voices, keep the... <laughs> the crazy. It, might, it might not be ADHD. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, 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 keep, keep, the, keep the thoughts. Keep the thoughts, right. you know what I'm saying? I feel like to, to be able to grow on the thoughts, be able to make it where you're not circular, to make it where you're not just, you know what I'm saying, turn them into voices, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, too, you know, sometimes that, that, internal, that internal thing in your head sound like a voice, you know what I'm saying? Really, um, right now. Yeah, so it's just like, I just, I just, I feel like I, I, I learned at a very young age the power of vulnerability. And I think that that's 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 like my superpower. And I think that that's what made me different from the other educators, from the other content creators, from the other truth tellers and all that. I think that vulnerability 
it's something that I lean into. And shit, you can't, like, I feel like because I see it in a different way and navigate it and relate to it in a different way, it allows me to move through the world differently. And what is that vulnerability to you? Is that just putting yourself out there without hiding anything? Is that, the, or is it letting it out? Or is it accepting your feelings? It's all that. It's all that. I think it's accepting your feelings. I think that it is being transparent. I think that it is being very uh, genuine and sincere with your fears. You know what I'm saying? With your hurt, with your trauma. Like, I know as a black man, there are a lot of things that I'm conditioned to not speak about in terms of feelings and emotions. Any, what's, any specific emotions? Yes, specific emotions in terms of, of fear. In fear terms of fear in general. I know that for a black man to talk openly and publicly about fear, especially outside of, like, race, if I talk about, like, trauma, I talk about, you know what I'm saying, uh, you know, it's ADHD, thinking about something like that, Right. That 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 allows for confirmation bias. Black people are already seen as inattentive. Black folks are already seen as impulsive. Black folks are already seen as forgetful. We are already seen as, you know what I'm saying, these different ways. So I can see how you feel me, a lot, a lot of different things, sometimes like mental health specifically, the feelings around mental health. I don't think that publicly there are, there is a safe space for black people. It's, you know what I'm saying? Black men, black women, black gender you know, non people to talk about feelings and emotions from that level of mental health. Right. I lean, I don't, I don't give a damn. You know what I'm saying? I know we're trying to, I'm going to lean away. I'm going to lean away from F-bombs. So, you know what I'm saying? I want to say, but I don't, you feel me? Like, I don't care about that. And for me, it's like when I'm hurt, I have no problem with expressing my hurt. When I want to cry, I have no expression. I have no feeling. I, I will cry. I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like they say, man, 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 he, he wears hard on his sleeve. Like, to me, that's a part of vulnerability. It's like, hey, how I feel is how I feel. And it's my feeling, not yours. So I would never feel ashamed or embarrassed about how you feel about my feelings. Right, what does it do to you anyway? Yeah, but I know how we condition those to make it where a lot of things we express is based off the perception of other people. And because I'm willing to be vulnerable and willing to deal with that rejection a little bit and make it where I can move and navigate a little bit differently. I don't have cool walls the way other people have. I'm not, I'm, I'm not perceptionally worried about seeing this cool because I feel like I am that. It's not, it's, not, it's not on me, it's in me. And it is what it is. And because I feel that way, I have no problem with exploring myself in all the ways and expressing myself in all the ways. That's the thing. There is a big difference between, because can, we can lie to ourselves all day and you can, I feel like there's moments where I accept how I feel about certain things that I might initially not want to make in an outwardly expression to someone. But there's a real ass thing, that transition of once you outwardly say it and someone else finds out, it's like it is a real feeling of release. And I think that is so important to the healing process, no matter what we're dealing with. And it's, it takes a lot of balls, especially I, I can't, I don't have any understanding of your feelings towards, I mean, anything really, to be honest, like I, you're your feelings, but especially with your culture, it's like, I don't, I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't live that life. Yeah. You know I'm trying I mean? to build cultural competency though, man. That's the, the concept that I hope the people listening to this is acknowledging a few things that I feel like I want to make, make sure it's very clear. Uh, Afro-pessimism as an ideology and academic base, there are multiple Afro-pessimists. There are multiple in, like multiple internal debates going on with Afro-pessimists. The second thing I want to acknowledge is there are Black people in the academy that vehemently disagree with Afro-pessimism, saying it's too pessimistic, saying it over-essentializes the Black experience, saying that. So I want to acknowledge for the multiplicity of Black thought, Black people, and the Black radical tradition when it comes to thinking about liberation. You feel me? The, 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 the third thing and last thing, you feel me, I say is, is the reason why I do the work I do 
is because I believe that we lack cultural competency and cultural literacy. And in doing the work simplified, I'm trying to build cultural literacy, the ability to read and write culture, and I'm trying to build cultural competency, the reason or the ability to comprehend, understand culture around you. So in, in doing this, I feel like I'm able to build community and you feel me, like leave the world a better place than what I, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm a, like cliche, be the change you want to see in the mirror type shit, right? So it's like, that's, that's, those are three things. I feel like those are things I want to make sure it's clearly outlined in people listening to this particular episode is that I'm not trying to centralize the black experience. I recognize that we all think differently and that there are different black intellectuals, different black debaters that will think differently about the way in which I've been able to contend this theory of Afro-pessimism. I also want to acknowledge there are multiple tenets of Afro-pessimism and multiple afro pessimists that also have internal debates with each other about social death, about blackness, about fungibility, about NATO alienation, about all those things. That's why I love about education. My motto was education is elevation because it makes me feel alive. You know what I'm saying? And then the last is really peeping game. It's like, the to me, the whole point of doing this is like cultural competency, raising consciousness. Awareness. And opening ideas and perspectives. And you just said other people are going to contend this differently and maybe not agree with everything you're saying, but that's, that's, I like that. that's the beauty that's the of point. it. That is literally the point of having these conversations. We're not all meant to agree with each other. I think we are meant to learn and raise each other's awareness I, and consciousness, as you said. I'm, I'm a big believer in that. I think it is important to lift everyone up. <laughs> Uh, for anyone who's uh, you, watch YouTube if you want to see what he just did. Uh, yeah, man, I, I appreciate you even just sharing this. This is a, a conversation that I have, again, I haven't tapped into on the podcast about, you know, the more the philosophical angle of death, but yeah, maybe philosophical and social, but there is, you can still be alive and die in many ways. Yeah. And, and hey, in the words of Nicki Minaj, man, everybody dies, but not everybody lives. That's it right there. I mean, it's just right to there. me like that's that's like that was some real shit that I heard when she was a song with Drake. I wish that I could have this moment for life. That was the song, you feel me? <laughs> yeah. But hey, I think both of them might even say that everybody dies, but not everybody lives. And to me, that's like a part of my work. It's thinking about like what it means to be an existent and what it means to be just merely existing. Everybody dies, but not everybody lives. Are you existing? Or are you in existence? You know what I'm saying? Like now, or are you just doing it? You feel me? And recognizing that the value of life is different for everybody based off race, class, gender, ability, sexuality, and your access to resources. Your resources, how you gonna survive? You feel me? And we know that the way you have access to resources dictates the value how everybody else had to you. You know what I'm saying? And the way you have resources is gonna dictate how 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 easy, comfortable, quickly you come to death. If we acknowledge to me from that simplified, you feel me, perspective, I feel like it make it where people that's doing the type of work I'm doing make it where it makes sense. So what's the key to living then in regards to, in your opinion, the way you live your life and raising consciousness? Is it just being conscious? To me, to me, it's about like uh, relationships or like how the Rastafarians say the I and I. It's like being able to see like the, myself and everybody around me, but also being able to, regardless if I can't see that, is having respect for things around me. And to me, it's like I, I know that nobody want to eat, sleep for dinner. Nobody want to be, you know what I'm saying, sexually assaulted. Nobody wants to be stereotyped and recognizing because I know those truisms, how can I help other people work through those things? Because I'm working through it as well. So if I can help you help me, that's cool. But even if you can't help me, 
I think that I'm doing the work that I feel like God and the ancestors placed me on this earth to do. And being real, I was born December 9th, 1990. I'm genuinely going to be happy. Like, I'm happy that the day I die, I know for a fact. I can say I've contributed to the world in ways that it was better than it was December 8th, 1990, uniquely because of what I was able to do. And not even, like, I don't, I don't care about the history books, nothing like that. It's really thinking about, like, I'm one person. A lot of people were able to help me and be where I'm at. You feel me? Some people, I can't even really remember them until I see them type shit. But so it's like my goal is to make it where I can be there for other people. Each one, teach one type shit. That's it, man. That's the, I think that's, uh, that's a good excerpt of the art of living right there. I mean, what I'm taking from it, you, you said a lot in there that is kind of jam-packed, but it's just, it's others, right? Yeah, others. Others. Like others. It's, it's others. It's just ourselves too, you know. You gotta, we got to yeah. look out for ourselves, obviously, but I think with others helps ourselves. And it's yeah. like, yeah, it's yeah. all that. Yeah, it, the, yeah. Yeah, the to me the other cannot be separated from self because other is other in relationship to self. Yeah. It's literally what makes the other because <laughs> they are outside of self. You see what I'm saying? They literally. And to me, it's thinking about race, class, gender, ability, sexuality. Those are all identities that facilitate processes of otherization. Mm, it's so true. Yeah, that's literally the reason for otherization. And separating. Yeah, Everyone's and, against yeah. so we're all getting separated. There's so it. much separation. That's it. That's but, it. But all the separation is all, it's all semantics to me. So a lot of it is our mentalities and just, we're just defining shit that doesn't define someone. Yeah. So, 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 so to me, it's like, okay, understanding difference one-on-one, it's like, okay, instead of focusing on differences, we're going to focus on the way they were same and this, that, and the other. To me, like understanding differences 301, upper division is like embracing our infinite differences to acknowledge the way that those differences collide that creates conflict i think that if we acknowledge infinite difference and we're celebrating the infinite ways that we're a difference of each other that that right there i feel like completely restructures how otherization works a lot of people was a lot of people argue that violence one-on-one is through the process of otherization if i can otherize you i can make it rational to wage violence against you because you are the other there's justification you feel me but justification in justification and identity of other and recognizing how when you otherize somebody, you are separating yourself from them. That's literally what makes them other. So we got to de-otherize? Yeah, de-otherize or be able to do what Rastafarian says, the I and I. Recognize how the self is always already tied to everything around you to make you where you have a respect for everything around you. If you have a capitalist understanding towards everything, you're going to automatically view things as if, what can you do for me? How can you add to it? To me, that's that's always the dehumanization. So if I can just respect life for just life, you feel me? I think that makes it where I can see things for what they are, not for what you can do for me, not what I can do for you. You feel me? Not for how we can make profit or monetize or this, that, and the other, but just a mere respect for life just because. Yeah, it's like what glasses everyone shopping at LensCrafters? Like, what lens are we wearing? That, like, what lens that, is we wearing? What Shit, lens? capitalism have us wearing lenses where we always already trying to f- filter these distinctions and status to create a hierarchy. And sometimes that hierarchy, or a lot of times, that hierarchy is between race, class, and ability, sexuality. But we know class and material things are also ways that we're able to dictate who gets what, when, where, and how. You feel me? And that's what we're gonna teach. That's what we teach high schools. Definition of politics is who gets what, when, where, and how. I think it's the white dude Hoslow or some shit that said that. You feel me? But to me, it's like I understand politics being so integral to how I live my life. If I if I get if I get water or not get water, to me, that's a political question. 
You feel me? If I got potholes in my road, that's a political question. If I have more access to a, 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 a McDonald's and a corner store than I have a grocery store, that's a political question. You see what I'm saying? And because I understand, understand politics, understood politics at a very young age as being just simple fly shit and not just some white old white men talking about life that don't understand my life, I didn't understand it that way. I understood it as, hmm, I understand that I live on Section 8. I get hood, I get food stamps. That's another way you ask me this. When I was in seventh grade, that's when John Kerry and George Bush was going, you know what I'm saying, going on sixth grade, actually. I think it was sixth grade. That's when that's when they was, you know what I'm saying, doing it. In the black community, it was understood or people was us people was talking about if George Bush get into office, the implications on us that's on government assistance. That was my first real life introduction to politics. Shit, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in middle school, man. But I understand that, man, my mama had me when she was 16 years old. You feel me? My mama, my mama, you feel my mama, my daddy was in jail a lot. You know what I'm saying? My life was, I understood at a very young age how the end of the month was hard because the food stamps was the food was gone. You know? I understood, you feel me, in my neighborhood, all of us lived in, most of us lived in Section 8. Most of us lived in government assistance. So when you get a person that's going to be in office that's talking specifically about government assistance and cutting it, and you a youngster, and it's being talked about through the lens of bootstrapping, I'm in middle school. You going to punish me for my mama doing or not doing? That's wild. But that was my introduction. You see what I'm saying? And then just seeing the way in which uh, John Kerry, I think his name got, you know what I'm saying? The, like, the CIA play out. I, I remember that. I remember how I felt when I was there. I remember, I remember all that. But this, these things like this really shaped my life, really shaped how I understood the world. Whew. Yeah, and it's just so many moving pieces. And the fact that you're you're able to tie that back as a young kid, that in itself makes me think how conscious you were at a young age. Unless, yeah. unless you're – I'm sure you've reflected back and, and this and that. Reflected you know? back, but definitely, man. When I was that age, you remember man, that? I, remember, I remember feeling scared, bro. I remember feeling scared. Like, man, so y'all telling me if George Bush get in here, he going he gonna to impact the way I live? Like, what? What you talking about? Like, what? Come on now. Yeah. Man, well, you know how like you know how much food stamps uniquely is in, embedded in like the lower income, you know what I'm saying, experience? You know how much we barter food stamps and being able to like, you see what I'm saying? Like that's a that's that's what I knew. Yeah. Listen, from a from a tra- from a tra- from a transition, <laughs> from a transition of <laughs> like shit. I know you should take the mic off and just drop it real quick. <laughs> um, but from a transition from you know, from social death, I got to ask, I'm just curious. I, mean, I, I wanted to ask you at the, towards the end of this because I'm just curious what your perspective is on end of life because sometimes a driving force of life is the fact that we're here temporarily. We're on a death podcast about death, ladies and gentlemen. What do you believe happens after we die? Do you have any space in your brain to even contemplate that? Yeah. Because <laughs> you, I thought you, about you know a lot, lot of shit. I, I thought about it a lot. And I think that when I started really getting into philosophy, I understood, you feel me, I was with Socrates talking about how we understand wisdom. And he, and, and, and he was able to define wisdom based off of the, the debate about death. And it's just like, you know, we shouldn't fear the unknown. And to me, it's like wisdom is about being able to understand your limits of your knowledge. And for me, it's just like knowledge is based in evidence. And there's not much evidence based in death what we, are, what we already know. So for me, it's just like, because I come from a Southern Baptist, you know what I'm saying? Shit is like the 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 ideas of death have been so driving to my society that I feel like I don't even worry about it if I'm being real with you. And I'm I'm able to be content with acknowledging that I don't know, being real with you. 
I know that it's the great equalizer. I know that regardless of how much money I got or how what color I got or, you feel me, what I'm sexualized, what I what sexual y'all like, I know that when I die, you know what I'm saying, it's just death. I'm going to get buried the same place they do, go to the same this, that, and they do, and I'm going to be like, I don't know. You see what I'm saying? But to me, it's about, like, that value to life and recognizing everybody dies but not everybody lives. I was raised in a town where my people was also on the plantation at. So I think consciously about how people was born and people was born and raised in the same streets that I was going, but they didn't have a value to life. So to me, it's thinking about like shit. To me, like what is death if you ain't got no value to life? You already did, and they go back to just social death. Like shit, if you ain't got no, you feel me? It's like if you, if you ain't got no reason to live, then what you know what I mean? And I really understood that. So I just feel like you know. Keeping it that way, bro. Keeping it that way, man. Like shit. Keeping it that way, man. You know, talking about you talking about being vulnerable earlier. I'm gonna say uh, this is the first podcast in a long time that I took a little bit of the the devil's lettuce before the episode started. Yeah. So I was feeling it's, I'm happy I did because this is a very uh, a really different conversation for this podcast. I, I learned a lot. I admire the shit that you're doing. You're moving. You're living. You're looking to make a difference, and you are making a difference. Um, so I'm just impressed with how you speak, uh, that you put yourself out there. You, you just, as, seem as real as it gets, even though I've only known you for like an hour and a half at this point. Yeah. It's been. Appreciate I, it, I, I, I appreciate you. And it's only up from here. And I want to thank you for being on here. And, thank uh, you for this opportunity, but, man. Yeah, but before we get out, um, if you have, if you have any other last words you feel like saying and or plug, tell people where they can find you and maybe square up that shirt for that camera too, actually. Yeah, yeah, man. I got, uh, theconsciously.com. That's where you can find me for all... Uh, consulting. I'm an educational consultant. I do a lot of public speaking, trainings from uh, professional development to diversity and equity and inclusion, the consciously on all social media sites. And, you know, uh, tap in with me. You know, um, I love educating. I'm a life learner. My motto is education is elevation. And, you know, um, I consider myself an expert on identity and culture, you know, and if you if you got a a, a classroom, a, a a a employee base, a you feel me organization that you feel like could could learn and or you know uh, increase the climate, you feel me where you at? Yeah, theconsciously.com is where you will go. I'm looking forward to it. I mean, appreciate you again for having me on the podcast, Thanks, man. Brother. Consciously, dead talks. Till next time. Thank y'all. Peace.